Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. I know that it's not going to be me. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, more than it is anything else, our hearts are deceitful. They are desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7 uh, verses 21 through 23 says that it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within the heart and are what defile a person. How do I know it's not going to be me? That's a question that I've asked myself multiple times this past week because I just heard the news of a worship leader at a church that I love and admire and who has written music that has been absolutely transformative in my life and my walk with Jesus when I first started doing this whole Christian thing. Music that has quite literally changed my life. It just came out that this worship leader who wrote all of those songs just has been hiding this horrible, ugly sin behind closed doors for the past 10 plus years since 2011. This tragic falling, this tragic moral failure of this man that everybody looked up to and who everybody thought could do no wrong. And I hate to say it, but there are so many other stories like that that I've heard. And I'm still shocked by them, but at the same time, I'm not surprised. Because I've heard so many stories of guys like him that are kind of impersonal and far off that I look up to from afar And then I've also seen up close and personal people who I deeply love and admire and respect, old bosses and supervisors who fall short and have these incredible moral failures. And you see, it's not just the big and ugly stuff that happens. Think of all the stories that you hear. We hear stories of divorce, for example, all the time. We hear stories of affairs all the time. And think of how normal those stories become. Think of how desensitized to them that we can be. And I hope that I'm wrong. I really, really do. But statistically speaking, some of you in this room will live through some of those stories. Let's just take marriage, for example. If every single one of us in this room got married one day, then a third of this room, think of a whole section, will go through divorce at least once. Some of you, multiple times. If every single one of us in this room gets married, then 25% of this room, again, just think of this entire right side wing, will admit to having an affair. And who knows how many else will keep it hidden for all their life. Those should be sobering and shocking statistics. Because people you wouldn't expect to fall, fall all the time. And so that brings up my question that I've been asking myself. How do I know it's not going to be me? And how do you know it's not going to be you? 
You see, where we're going today, 2 Samuel chapter 10 all the way through 12, is going to help us confront those hard questions head on. And I believe help us see how, just like Zach said, a man named Jesus who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago gives us hope. And so that's where we're going today. And I know some of you in here are like, geez, Nathan, like we can go with the funny story, like started off heavy. So with that said, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 11, but um, and a little bit of 12, but we need to know the context and the setting surrounding those chapters. So um, for all of you note takers, I'm divvying this up pretty well, I think. Um, part one is called The Backdrop, and that is 2 Samuel chapter 10. And I'm simply just going to summarize what goes on in chapter 10 for you. Chewing on my eyes. Here's the Sparknote slash TLDR version, right? Okay, there's a group of people called the Ammonites. They're kind of, um, not kind of, they are very much so enemies of the nation of Israel, um, which is God's chosen people. The Ammonites, their king just died, um, and their son is about to step up and fill his father's shoes, which means that they are in the middle of a transition of power, which is when a nation is at its most weak and vulnerable state. That is when any other nation goes, oh, they're in a transition of power, now's the time to attack. This is the ideal time to go and conquer them. And so David, who is king over the Israelites, who rules over them, um, over the nation of Israel, decides instead of going to wipe them out, uh, he decides to show kindness to them. And he had every reason to go and sack them. They'd had previous strife before. You see, the people of Israel at this point in history, they're kind of peaking. They are great. They weren't great at one point, but now King David is the king, and he's establishing this incredible kingdom. They're winning battle after battle. They're expanding their kingdom. They're establishing who they are. They have a capital city now. It, w it made every sense, every bit of sense to go and attack the Ammonites, but he decides, you know what? I'm going to show them kindness. I'm not going to uh, wipe them out. I'm actually going to extend a peace offering to them, and we're going to try and just make a little treaty. And so what happens is, and where all the drama goes down, is the Ammonites totally misinterpret David's actions. And they instead reject his kindness. And what happens is they begin to pick a fight with David and with the Israelites, which is a bad choice because they end up losing that fight we're going to see. And so all, all of this goes down, and as it does, you, you're reading through chapter 10, and what you see is David's noble character, his compassionate heart, uh, his kindness, his loyalty, his integrity, his power, and his strength. All of these things are on display in chapter 10, which is key, because it's in light of all of that that chapter 11 happens. It's in light of all of David's best traits that chapter 11 goes down. So enter in part 2 the disaster. Pick up with me in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants, or his soldiers, with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Let me stop right there because there's already something I want to highlight. Notice how it says it's the time of year when kings go out to battle. Now David, David's a king, right? And he doesn't go out to battle. What does he do instead? It says he remains at Jerusalem. Um, and he sent others in his place. He sent his general, his chief general Joab. He sent all of his servants, all of his soldiers, and it says all of Israel. Kind of painting this picture of everyone who could fight, he sent out to go fight except for him. 
except for the leader and the king. He stays put and stays home. Um, rather, than joining, rather than joining them like any other king would, and like he had done a thousand times before, he decided to stay in Jerusalem. Let's keep reading in verse 2. It says, it happened late one afternoon, which right there you read that and you're like, oh, the Bible's about to spill some tea. And so it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, he was walking on the roof of his house, that he saw from his roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about this woman. And one came back and said, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David, hearing this, sent messengers, and he took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. She had, had been bathing. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So in case anyone missed it, David just slept with another man's wife. And he knocked her up. He got her pregnant. Obviously not a good situation, right? And I, I know that that seems pretty straightforward, but I want us to get immersed in the story just a little bit more. Because right before this, we just saw that David sent all of his men, his entire army, to battle. Specifically, it uses the words ravaging and besieging. It's this picture of life is on the line and death is highly, highly probable. We are fighting at war. And then our attention is drawn to King David. And what does it say he's doing? It says he's chilling out in late afternoon. And what typically happens late in the afternoon? The sun begins to set, right? This little thing called golden hour kicks in. And it's one of those moments where everything's glowing. You're looking at the sunset and it's a beautiful moment. And you're like, oh. This is awesome. Life is good. And to paint the picture even more, we're told David is just lounging on his couch, just resting. And when it says he rose from his couch and goes on his roof, I like to imagine that he's just sitting there, right? He stretches. He's watching the sunset go down. He goes, you know what? I'm going to go for a stroll. Meanwhile, all of his army is out fighting for their lives, and he's just going on a lovely stroll to enjoy the evening air. And it sounds awesome for him. It's, it's this totally relaxed scene. It's casual. It's calm. It's a total contrast to ravaging and besieging. And it's a scene that feels safe. Again, cool evening air, late in the afternoon, sun is going down. David's on his couch. He's resting. He's away from all of the fighting and away from all of his external enemies. He feels safe. And he stayed where it's safe. He feels secure where he is. And he is so successful. He is so powerful. He's so respected. And he is so esteemed that he can now let others do the risky work in his place for him. And no one would even question him for it. And yet, in light of all that, we see that David isn't actually safe. We see what plays out. And we see that he is safe from his external enemies for sure. But he's not safe from himself and his own flaws. So he falls by making a huge mistake. Here's this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, faithfully married to another man, Uriah, who we'll soon find out is one of David's most loyal and faithful soldiers. It goes on to tell us that he's actually in David's top 30 most valiant men. Like David and him are kind of close. He's faithful and loyal to David, and he sees her wife. She's bathing, cleaning herself, 
And a um, little bit of Bible nerd context around verse 4. We're led to believe that she, when she's bathing, she's actually performing a ritualistic bathing act um, at the end of her menstrual cycle, a.k.a. when she's most fertile, a.k.a. why she ends up getting pregnant. But it's this ritualistic bathing act that is actually going before the Lord and purifying herself according to the laws at that time, meaning, to translate, she is actually pursuing purity and pursuing holiness. And we see David, while she's doing that, he sees her, he's attracted to her, not a big deal at first, until he finds out she belongs to another man, she's married, and he then actually leads this woman who is pursuing purity and pursuing holiness, and he leads her into an unholy impure act and into his own sin. A total contrast in this picture. And you know, you know homie was tweaking when he found out she was pregnant, right? Like, oh my gosh, I messed up. And just when you think things can't get any worse, here's part three, the cover-up. I'm going to summarize verses 6 through 13. He gets her pregnant. She tells him. He freaks out. And what happens is, immediately after finding out he gets her pregnant, David commands Uriah, her husband, who's out fighting a war, he commands him to come home. And so messengers get sent to Uriah. They're like, hey, the king needs you. Why don't you stop fighting? Come back to Jerusalem. The king wants to talk with you. And so Uriah comes, and then David meets with him, and he tries being all friendly with him. He, he starts pretending to care for him. He's asking him how he and his men are doing. How's the fighting going? Like, are you guys okay? Are you hanging in there? Like, okay, cool. And basically, he's asking about this war, which, mind you, he's not at. And then he says, hey, Uriah, you've been killing it, man. Like, you and your men are doing such a great job hey, why don't you take the night off? Why don't you just stop fighting for a little while, get some rest, get some R&R, you know, let's recover. And how about um, I I send you to your wife with a gift? Like, y'all go enjoy yourselves. I'm giving you a gift. Go down, have yourself a good time, eat some good food, drink some good wine, um, and enjoy some good time with your wife. And he thinks he's clever. He thinks he's manipulating the situation to cover up his tracks because he's like, if Uriah can go sleep with his wife, then whenever she starts showing and it's obvious that she's pregnant, he's going to think, oh, that's my kid. Like, I slept with her just the other day. Um, He thinks it's going to be this successful cover-up. But here's what happens. Uriah, faithful, loyal Uriah, full of integrity, doesn't actually go home to his wife. It says that he instead is found sleeping on the floor outside of the king's house, right outside of the king's door. And when David asks, why are you doing that? He tells David, how could I possibly go rest and enjoy myself and fill myself with pleasure when I know all of my men, all of my brothers are out there fighting for their lives? Their lives are on the line. It is, we are at war. This is a season of war, not a season to enjoy yourself and rest. He said, I'm going to honor that. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to stay put here to protect you just in case you need me. And it's this total slap in the face moment for David, right? Who is doing exactly that. Enjoying himself, resting, and having sex while all of his men are out fighting for their lives. And you can imagine, you can imagine that David is feeling so convicted hearing this from the man whose wife he just slept with. And so what does he do? He tries harder. He doubles down. He says, okay, plan A didn't work. Let's move to plan B. If I can get this guy really, really drunk, 
then send him home to his really beautiful wife, then surely he's not going to not sleep with her, right? And so that's what he does. He invites Uriah over again. He gets him really, really drunk. And he says, Uriah, go home. Like, enjoy yourself. And yet it says, again, faithful, loyal, full of integrity, Uriah does not go home. And he sleeps outside of the king's door once again with all of the other soldiers. David's plan A and David's plan B both fail to cover up his tracks. And so he gets desperate and he moves to his last resort, plan C. Pick up with me in verse 14 of chapter 11. It says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Real quick, he's giving Uriah a letter that's sealed, that's going to have instructions you're going to see about Uriah. And Uriah is so faithful and loyal that he doesn't even open it, and he's carrying a letter that is ha- has his death sentence in it by his own hand, and he's totally oblivious to it. So he sends it by the hand of Uriah, and in that letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him. Draw back from the hardest fighting that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men of the enemy. And the men of the city, they came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, Uriah the Hittite being among them. And then verses 18 through 21 um, says, Joab tells one of the messengers, hey, go tell David what happened. And if he gets angry whenever he finds out that we lost a lot of soldiers by sending them into the thick of battle on the front lines, let him know that Uriah was one of those soldiers, and it'll be fine. And so we pick up in verse 22, the messenger does that. He says, the messenger went and came and told David all that had happened um, and all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us, and they came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. But then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, Hittite, is also dead. And David said to the messenger, here's what I want you to tell Joab. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Basically saying, people die in war. It's okay. Let's make sure it's not a big deal. And then when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. She loved him. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I feel like that's pretty clear, pretty straightforward, and I don't need to recap a whole lot. But David, just to make sure we are clear, just murdered a man to cover up his own sin his own mistake. And it's this moment when you're reading this and you're like, David, what the heck? What did you just do? And you see, David, the reason it's so shocking is because we've, if you've kept up with us for this entire um, sermon series through 1st and 2nd Samuel, you see that David is chosen by God himself. He's this great man chosen by God chosen to be king over Israel, and he was a good king. He was a wise king. He was a powerful king. He established a kingdom of justice and of righteousness. And again, 
him and Israel are peaking. Things are looking up for this nation and for David. And it's been repeated time and time again that the Lord was with David wherever he went and that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And even more, that David was a man after God's own heart. That is one of David's biggest, most known descriptions. So you read that, and you're like, here's this great man. How could this happen? How could he go that far? And it's this shocking reality that, um, that despite that there's so much to admire and so much that we should admire about David, it's a reality that he is just another flawed and broken human being just like you and me. And that's why his fall is so shocking. Because we see someone who accomplished so many great things for God and so many great things with God, and yet we're reminded that he is imperfect. We're reminded that he has sin in his heart and he is not beyond falling into it. And he is actually capable of some pretty, pretty terrible stuff, just like you and me. Now, let's wrap this story up. Chapter 12, part four, the call out. We just read that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Verse one of chapter 12 says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and very many herds, but the poor man had nothing but one single little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat with him um, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him, kind of like a pet, a beloved pet. And then verse 4 says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or one of his own herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But instead, he took the poor man's one single lamb and prepared it for the, for the traveler. Then David, hearing this, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And so David's hearing this story, and he's saying, here's a man who had everything. He had more sheep, more cattle than he knew what to do with, and he took this one single lamb that belonged to a poor man because he didn't want to give his up, and he sacrificed it, gave it away, and he's like, that is not right. And David is saying, that guy deserves to die. He needs to pay that poor man back fourfold. And then Nathan slaps him in the face by saying, David, I hate to break it to you, but you're the man in that story. What you have done is the same exact thing. And then the rest of chapter 12 is basically Nathan telling David what he's done and sharing with David, here's what the Lord says about this. And we see that God is essentially saying, David, I love you, I really do, but your sin has some pretty massive consequences. And you're going to have to suffer through those consequences. And David, we see, has this moment where he wakes up and he's like, oh my gosh, what have I done? What did I do? How did I get here? And Nathan's explaining these consequences, including the death of the child that him and Bathsheba just had, which is pretty tragic. Um, and there's so many other things that we're going to see play out 
um, in the next coming chapters, things like there's always going to be strife in his house. There's, his sons are going to um, try to overthrow him and try to kill him. All of these harsh consequences that you're like, where's all this coming from? But he also is reminded that the, he doesn't need to fear that the Lord will cut him off from his love, favor, and grace. And so what ends up happening is we hear all this, and then we see Bathsheba has the child. The child gets really sick. David starts freaking out. He starts begging and pleading. He fasts and he mourns, um, recognizing that this is exactly what uh, he was told would happen. And then it's this tragic moment where the child actually dies. And David's response, though, is kind of jaw-dropping. It says that he cleans himself up, he hears the child is dead, and then he goes to the house of the Lord and he worships him there, um, which I think is just a fascinating response. And then he goes and comforts, comforts Bathsheba, who's now his wife. They give birth to another son named Solomon, and it's th- he goes on to win another battle. He actually goes out with his men to fight now. They have this incredible victory, and you start seeing that God's kindness and his redemption and his restoration are already in play. And so with all that said, to kind of wrap up our time here, here's how I kind of want to um, apply this to us and to our life here. Here's some things that we can learn from everything that goes down here. And honestly, I would encourage you to go read on your own chapter 10 through 12 all the way through. And if you want just something to like study while you do it, I want you to pay attention all the way from chapter 10 to 12 every time you see the word sent. I want you to underline it, take a note of it. Every time you see the word sent, just see what happens all the way through those three chapters. And I think it's a fascinating and enlightening observation not going to tell you what it is. I want you to go discover it for yourself. But anyways, here's some things that we can learn from all these chapters. Number one, our hearts deceive us. That is just reality. Just like Jeremiah 17, 9 says, our hearts are deceitful and we can't understand them. They will always fool us. You see, we fail to see ourselves as we truly are, which is broken and flawed and sometimes extremely foolish human beings. But that's not how we view ourselves, right? We have a much more optimistic view of ourselves, especially whenever the world around us applauds the kind of life that we lead, especially whenever we have the resume, whenever we have the success and the achievements and the esteem and the respect. Of course, when you have those things and you're in that golden hour moment of life, of course you think you can do no wrong. Of course you don't see yourself properly. Of course you believe you're, the, you're on top of the world and that you're safe, which means that it is so incredibly crucial as followers of Jesus to have the humility to constantly remind ourselves that we are, just like Zach said, a room full of broken and imperfect people. Or another way to put it, we are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. The other thing we can learn from this is that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4 says that exactly, that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, and it's on display here in this story. Um, It is his kindness, the Lord's kindness, to actually confront you with your sin, to open your eyes to, to how broken and flawed you are, just like Nathan did with David. You are that man. Here's what you've done. That is his kindness to even make you aware of it. And it's his kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. 
Um, but what does repentance look like? The, I get that that can be a big, scary word for a lot of us in this room. So let me start with what repentance is not, just to make sure we understand it clearly. Repentance is not dismissal or rumination over your sin. What repentance is, is ownership of your sin. You see, dismissal of your sin doesn't actually deal with your sin. It stuffs it down and it ignores it. And I hate to break it to you, but sin is just like a cancer that if not dealt with will only lead to death. So don't dismiss your sin. But also, on the flip side, ruminating of your sin is no better. You see, ruminating keeps you repetitively thinking and dwelling on negative feelings, regrets, emotions, and mistakes, and all of the consequences they have caused or could potentially cause. Ruminating keeps you stuck in the shame cycle. Ownership, on the other hand, moves you to action. Ownership of your sin leads you to repent of your sin. And repentance, again, big scary word for a lot of us in this room, but really simply, repentance is turning from your sin and turning towards Christ and receiving the forgiveness and love of a good and gracious Father. And what do you find when you repent? More kindness, more grace, immeasurable grace, forgiveness, and restoration. In the middle of Nathan calling David out, we see in verse 13 that David has this moment where he says, Oh my gosh, I have sinned against the Lord. And next week, we're actually going to zoom in on that. Ben's going to get up here and preach through Psalm 51, which is David's whole journal entry on this situation where he's repenting before the Lord. So stay tuned for next week. But he has this moment, I've sinned before the Lord, and then Nathan says, yes, yes, you have. And there are really real consequences to what you've done right here and right now. But your eternity is safe. The Lord has put your sin away. You won't be separated from his love. You won't surely die. And here's what that means for you. That if you are in Christ— A, you've got to know that your success doesn't protect you and it doesn't define you, but it also reminds you that your sin doesn't disqualify you and your sin doesn't define you either. Your success doesn't protect you and your sin doesn't disqualify you. Romans 8, chapter 8 starts with, in verse 1, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation, no matter what you've done. And then it ends with saying, no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, no power in this world, not a single thing could ever separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus. And Tim Keller is a pastor and writer who's passed away now, who you should all read though. Um, And he has, he puts it this way, and I think it's beautiful. He says, nobody, not a single person, is so great that they are beyond falling. And nobody, not a single person, is so sinful that they are beyond the reach of grace or being restored. And there are two types of people in this room that need to hear that. And one type needs to be alarmed, and the other needs to be encouraged. The first person is a person who thinks, oh, I would never do that. I, I could never do that. My moral compass is so strong. I've got the resume. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm about. I could never go that far. I would never cross that line. If that is you and that's what you're thinking, you need to be alarmed by the reality that not a single person is so great that they are beyond falling. The second type of person in this room is the person who's believing 
oh my gosh, what I've done, the mistakes that I've made can never be made right. I am too far gone. I am too ruined. I am too ashamed. I can never make things right. I can never make things whole. I could never feel whole again because of what I've done. Restoration is not an option for me. Redemption does not apply to me. And if that is you, you should be encouraged by the reality that nobody is so sinful or so broken that you are beyond the reach of grace or beyond restoration. You see, our hearts are deceitful, yes. No one is righteous, no, not one. That is true. We are each capable of some pretty terrible, ugly stuff because of our sinful condition. And you know what? The God of the universe, he looks at us in that sinful condition and with the voice of a perfect and gracious father and in the most loving and gentle tone, he says, I know. I know you're broken. I know what you're capable of. I know what you've done. I know what you will do. And you know what? I still love you. Romans 5.8 says that he shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died on a cross for us. And then he walked out of a grave three days later so that we could have his life and have his righteousness. And what that means for you is that despite our sinful fallen condition, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you can have hope, you can experience grace, you can experience restoration, and despite your fallen condition, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the very Spirit of God can dwell within us. Because if you believe and trust in Jesus, you receive his Holy Spirit, who turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, who makes the way of God known to us and teaches us how to make our Father proud. And so that we no longer have to be influenced by our deceitful hearts, but we can be influenced by the very heart of God himself because of his Spirit within us. You see, this story, David's story here in these chapters, ends with a verse that says, the thing that he had done displeased the God who loved him. And that's one of the things that he's remembered for. But that doesn't have to be our story. My hope, my prayer for you is that we would all be a people who choose Jesus over and over and over again, who choose his way over and over and over again, and choose to take up our cross deny ourselves, deny our deceitful hearts so that when we arrive at eternity's shore one day, God doesn't look at us and say, the thing that you have done displeases me. But instead, he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That can be our story. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are how you love us always. Um, Father, we offer you up our brokenness. We offer you up our talents, our giftings, our successes, and our failures alike, Lord, and ask that you would use them for your greater purposes in our life and the world around us, Lord, that um, you would use each of those things um, so that we could draw closer and closer to you. 
Um, Father, I pray that each of us in this room, no matter what we are holding, um, whether we are believing that we are too far gone or have made too big of mistakes to, to be out of reach from your grace, that you would meet us in that and show us that um, that's exactly who you came to meet with your grace. Um, Father, we, we trust you and we need you desperately. Um, Father, we, we love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.